jump in. Um, I'm not going to review uh, much because I just don't have time. You can listen to the tapes or, you know, you can read it. It's all right there in the in the book. <laughs> uh, you don't have a copy. We give them away in the foyer. So <clears throat> let's just pray once more and invite uh, Holy Spirit. Help me uh, communicate the message in a clear and effective way. Father, we, we submit ourselves to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The big theme of this portion, I'm going to be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 4, 8 through 5.12, kind of a big chunk, um, and uh, kind of uh, delving into it. Uh, the big theme of this section is bondage versus freedom, slavery versus freedom. And Paul is really getting to the gist, the, the, the meat of this letter, and addressing the real theological issue, the issue that was affecting the lives of the Galatians, as we've talked about uh, in the previous weeks. We ended uh, the last time I taught uh, Galatians with Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And here's Paul explaining to the Galatians their true identity, that they're sons, they're not slaves, they're not in bondage. They're not in slavery. They're free. And they're, they're sons of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I don't know if you remember, but I had just read uh, an article in Time Magazine, actually, about cracking cancer's code and one of the, um, uh, the, the disease of cancer. And one of the leading uh, scientists, that's, uh, doctors that's uh, trying to break the, uh, find a cure for cancer, uh, was quoted saying that the cardinal feature, the distinguishing cardinal feature of a cancer cell is that it's lost the identity it was born with. You know, cancer is a unique, unique disease. It's not an infection from outside. It's, it's, it's this, our own cells uh, uh, going berserk, losing the identity. Each, each cell has an identity, has a purpose uh, uh, written within its uh, code. That it's supposed to be a particular type of cell, and, and cancer is when that when that goes uh, uh, wrong. <clears throat> and so the cardinal feature of a cancer cell is that it's lost its identity it's born with. In Christ, we are all born with a new identity. All right, uh, we are born as sons and daughters of the King. And reverting Paul's Paul's message was reverting to legalism, which was the issue that the the Galatians were struggling with, or to sinfulness, which is uh, the opposite reaction that some people have, falling back into a lifestyle of, of sin, both are like spiritual cancers. Right? We're losing the identity of our new birth. And Paul expresses his fear for the church in this first section. I'm going to read 8 through 11. Or, uh, yeah, chapter 4, verse 8 through 11 says, this is from the New King James. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those... Uh, speaking to the Galatians, when you didn't know God before they became Christians, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored in vain. Paul is expressing his concern that the Galatians are going back 
and turning again to the weak and beggarly elements. Paul equates, listen up, their former pagan ritual lifestyle. He's writing to uh, mostly uh, um, uh, <clears throat> Gentile church. <laughs> Since I've been on vacation, I get back into <laughs> preacher mode. He's writing to a mostly uh, the converts who are mostly out of a pagan lifestyle. And he actually compares, he says, if you saw it there, it says, when you did not know God, you served those things which are by nature not gods. But now you're turning back to those very same things. They were not turning back to paganism. They were turning back to Judaism. And he's saying that's the same error. How would you turn back to a lesser thing? Okay, to, to turning back to whether it be uh, the pagan ritualism or Hebrew ritualism. And he specifically mentions uh, being uh, 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 adapting the Hebrew calendar of festivals and, and, and respecting that. So there's only two specifics in the whole book that I could find. Really, he points out and that's the two specifics were circumcision and the Hebrew calendar. And that those were the two things that um, uh, uh, the Judaizers, the people who came and preached that as Christians we must follow the Judaic uh, system. And the first two things they demanded were circumcision, because without circumcision you could not be a member of uh, of the Jewish faith, and and then the, adopting the Jewish calendar. <clears throat> and Paul says that's equal to going back to a pagan ritual uh, uh, lifestyle. It's a weak and beggarly. It doesn't have power. To change people's lives, and he and he confronts them pretty pretty radically, and you know what? You can take out the reference to Judaism here. All right, you can take the whole argument and understand the book of Galatians, the message of Galatians. You can actually use the same uh, Galatians and take out Judaism and put in any other ism. Okay, because any other ism, any other belief system, any other, uh, what did I say? <laughs> Beliefism. There you go. Is substandard to what we're called in Christ. Okay. What's that? Yeah, that's how they talk up in the UP. Hey. <laughs> you know, so so one thing, you know, there's two mistakes. We get overly um, negative about the Judaic faith. And listen, there, the, the, the law was given to preserve uh, the promise. There's a purpose. Paul doesn't diminish the law in any way. But we have to understand that we're called to something far greater. Incomparable, it says in other places in the New Testament, that life in Christ um, was incomparable even to what was given to the old, uh, to those under the old covenant. We'll get into that in a minute. <clears throat> Paul's not addressing moral behavior or the rightness of the morality displayed in the Mosaic Law or what we call the Old Testament. He's not talking about moral behavior. He's not talking about whether uh, the Old Testament laws are right. <laughs> He's very clear. They are right. All right. He's talking about identity. Okay. The issue is our identity, how one becomes and remains Christ-like, becomes that new creation in Christ. The next whole chapter of this uh, book deals with moral uh, uh, behavior 
And we, but we, in order to understand Christian moral behavior and the, the imperatives to live a Christ-like life morally, uh, we have to understand the motivation. We have to understand where the power to live differently comes from. And it's not from what the Galatians had been deceived into thinking, that it was some outward adherence to a, uh, um, a religious system. It's something radically different. It's something tremendously more powerful. Paul's fear was not that the Galatians had adopted a higher moral standard and becoming legalistic. His fear was that uh, they had reversed course and actually settled for something uh, that was a much lower standard, a standard of works, of outward uh, modification rather than inward new creation. All right? This is what it's all about. We're new creations in Christ. And so he expresses that he's afraid. And listen, some people um, actually have gotten angry at me. Can you believe that? <laughs> really? I'm always surprised by it. I'm always like, no, really, I am. Like, people get angry or, you know, sometimes they, <clears throat> they don't get outwardly angry. They just... They just leave. <laughs> they just avoid me, or they pout, or they complain. <clears throat> um, oh, this is why I was saying this. <laughs> I was like, why did I say it? Paul says, I'm afraid for you. Paul was the one that led them to the Lord. Established a church. He was their first pastor. And he's saying, listen, I think you guys may have lost it. All right? And so sometimes I have to confront people in sin. And I've actually had people angry with me, not because they were involved in something that was destructive to them and to others, but because I had a concern about them. As though that was not biblical. Listen, it's biblical to be confronted Okay, it's biblical for a pastor to be afraid. When I see someone's lifestyle and I go, I'm afraid. I'm a, there's some people that I'm afraid are going to end in hell. There's some people I'm afraid are going to waste their whole life. And at the end, look back and say, I, I was going after the wrong things. Now, they might make it to heaven, but they're, what they're going to see is the absence of what they could have had instead of living and walking in the reward of what God wanted for them. All right? And it's right, and it's okay. <clears throat> and frankly, you should be the same way toward uh, people. You know, there's some people you can look at, like, look at and go, wow, they're doing so good. I'm so proud of them. You know, I look to them as an example. But there's sometimes I go, wow. And sometimes I'm afraid for my own self. And that motivates me to change. All right? And hopefully it motivates you. So it's biblical. Paul expresses this, and it's an appropriate exp expression that he was afraid for the church. And then he goes on in verse um, 12 through 20 <clears throat> with a personal appeal. And this is a very traditional way a, a letter was written in their day, is that uh, Paul would express um, a requirement <clears throat> or an appeal and then present uh, various reasons why the readers should respond to the appeal. And the appeal... <clears throat> Let me just read this, verse 12 through 20. It says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at first, and my trial which was in the flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even, even as Christ Jesus. 
What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Exclude means they wanted to separate them away from Paul's influence and from the influence of the other churches and the other people who were preaching the true gospel. Um, I'm going to read through 20. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. And then he goes on, 19 and 20. My little children, whom I labored in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. I have doubts about you. And so he comes with a personal appeal. And that appeal is that the Galatians would become like him. All right? Think about that. He says, I wish, brethren, I urge you to become like me. Become like me. What did he mean by that? Become like that was the standard Paul was able to call them to. Become like me, because I became like you. Frankly, I think it's a powerful exhortation. It's the same thing. He, Paul is repeating, in essence, what Jesus Christ did, because Jesus came. Jesus made Himself a man and walked among us. Why? So that we could become like Him, right? Okay, And some of you might think, well, it's arrogant for Paul to say, you should become like me. But it wasn't. He was, there was no arrogance in it. He was saying, you need to follow. Another place he says, um, <clears throat> let me read it. Uh, he says, imitate me in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. In another place in 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says, I have become all things to all men that by... Uh, all means I may save some. It's a picture of Christ-like behavior. Paul says, I became like you so that I could communicate the truth of the Gospel to you. But these other people are coming in and demanding this a whole other lifestyle. They weren't becoming like uh, them. They were coming in on their high horse and saying you have to adopt this other uh, set of rules, and that Paul wasn't, uh, wasn't teaching really the truth, and it was confusing them. And he's saying, no, look at the humility that I express in coming and sharing my heart with you. And you received it, and you thought I was an angel. You thought I was Jesus himself. But no, I was just your servant. You need to become like me. And I want to challenge everyone here. Can you say that? Can you say that to someone else? Listen, Paul... <laughs> Paul wasn't required to be a better Christian than you or I. Or or let me put it another way. The call on your life is no less than the call on Paul's life. Right? In in the area of righteousness. In the area of Christ-likeness. Okay? Is this making sense? Am I connecting it? So, what do we pull out? What application? Can you say to another person, listen, you need to follow Jesus just like I'm following Jesus. This was Paul's appeal. You want to know how to follow Jesus? Follow Jesus like I follow Jesus. And if you can't say that, then what do you think should, should happen? Excuse me? You said it. 
Say it out loud. Change. Listen, I stand before you and I say, follow Christ like me. I'm serious. Ask my wife. (laughs) Come on. I challenge you. If you can't stand before others and say, follow me as I follow Christ, then you're not following Christ. You need to be evangelized. Yeah, and I'm doing it. If there's something in your life that prevents you from saying that, repent! You've lost your course. I have doubts for you. I fear for you. Change. Put off that weak and beggarly thing. And take on Christ. You've lost your identity. You've forgotten who you are, who you've called to be. It's not pride. I follow Christ on my knees. Sometimes I don't get that high. All right? There's no, there's no pride in following Christ. Because the first thing He says is lay down your life. All right? Just like He laid down His life. So I exhort you, follow. Be able to make that ex- exhortation. That's, that's evangelism, really. That's living a Christ-like <clears throat> uh-huh. life. Paul reminds them how eagerly they had received Him. And he, and he goes, his purpose here is expression in verse 19. He says, My little ch- children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. You know, this was Paul's goal in communicating to the Galatians. Not that they would become Paulians, right, and be part of his, uh, on his mailing list and send him money, but that, they, that, but that Christ would be formed in them. Let me read it in several different translations. In the, in the New Living Translation, it says, Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm. I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your life. That's the goal. That Christ is fully developed in your life. Alright? In the message it says, Do you know how I feel right now? And will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your lives? Like a mother in the pains of childbirth. That's how gripped Paul was in his very body and in his spirit. And the Amplified, this is, I like it probably the best, it says, My little children for whom I am again suffering birth pangs until Christ is completely and permanently formed or molded within you. So this was the goal that he was calling the Galatians to. And this is the goal that I'm calling you to. And this is the goal that God puts before you in His Scripture that Christ be formed in you completely and permanently. That's my motivation. That's why I get up and preach and why I do everything I do is to see Christ reproduced in you, in your life, and to see you live it fully and not, 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 not exchange it for something weaker or something less. That was His motivation to, to see the Galatians and to see us, God's motivation is to see each and every one of us to live Christ-like. That's what it means. He goes on from the personal appeal in that section to the next section, uh, verses 21-31, through 31, with a scriptural appeal. I'm going to read through this and try to uh, explain it in a brief way. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not hear the law? So he changes his tone. And instead of appealing personally, he says, okay, let's look at Scripture then. 
For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he was, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And he of the free woman through promise. Everybody say promise. Okay, it's a key word. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. It continues, verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What's the primary theme of this section? Bondage versus freedom. Okay, Whether we're born into slavery or born as uh, sons and daughters of the promise and free. And he compares... Uh, Abraham's descendants and, the, uh, and his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. This is one was born of a slave, Hagar. And you can read the story. And, and, and the other was born of a promise. It was a fulfillment of God's promise. And that was Isaac. And he said that, that symbolically illustrates the two covenants. Now, there's a little bit of difficulty here, <laughs> theologically, because... The, Jew, the people who were preaching to the, to the Gentiles were probably using this very same story to convince them that they needed to be circumcised. Because all descendants, true descendants of Abraham, had to be circumcised. And for a Gentile to become a descendant, of, to be included in the people of God, they had to practice this outward circumcision. And so Paul appeals to the very same passage that most likely the deceivers, the false teachers were using to say, no, you're looking at it the wrong way. What was at issue was not the Mosaic law, but promise versus fleshly fulfillment. Okay? And he compares, he says, this is a, and this is a legitimate way to, to, to understand Scripture. It doesn't remove all of the other ways that we interpret Scripture. But Paul uses this to illustrate a biblical truth. That that one, the firstborn of Abraham was the one that was born into bondage because he was born of the flesh. The second was Isaac, and he was promised. It was the promise. And it goes back to what he was saying earlier, that, 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 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. It goes back, it traces the origin of Christianity in your faith, not to Mount Sinai where the law was given and Moses, but to Abraham. Right? And that law was given afterward as a way to maintain the purity of the promise through the generations until Christ, till the time was fulfilled when Christ was come. And that we're not, look at the comparisons between the two. And what they were doing was they were uh, being drawn back into bondage and slavery. And he compares that to Israel. 
or to Jerusalem, which now was. He's saying that that is uh, now fulfilled in the natural Jerusalem. All right, and they were experiencing persecution. A little hard from our historical perspective because we look at the Jewish people and we think, oh, they've been persecuted for thousands of years, and it's true they have wrongfully, out of a racist bias. Okay, and that's horrible. Okay, but in that day, they were the ones killing Christians. Okay, <laughs> and you can't call Paul a racist. All right, he was a zealous Jew. <laughs> you know, he was a pure blood Jewish person and proud of it. And he loves the Jewish people. Are you hearing me? It's not about ethnicity. Okay? That's the big point. That's the main message. And that was one of the mistakes that the Galatians were making. That they had to adapt some other ethnicity. Doesn't this sound familiar? It says it's not not slavery comes through the natural birth. Freedom comes through a supernatural birth. All right, promise that supernatural promise that was given to Abraham and Sarah when it was impossible for them to have children. Sound like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus said in chapter three of John, it says, "Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom." Nicodemus, a Jewish scholar, said, "How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" Jesus said, "Most assuredly I say to you." Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Bless you. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. We need to have a spiritual birth. Everyone here has been born of the flesh. Right? Okay. But that's not going to get... That's Hagar. You're born into bondage. All right? And Jesus says there's another birth. There's a new birth. A spiritual birth that births us into freedom. And that's being born again in Christ. He concludes this section or continues this section with an authoritative appeal. And then he follows it with an ethical appeal, which we'll look at next week. But this authoritative appeal at the beginning of chapter 5, 5, chapter, uh, five verse 1 through 6, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You have attempted to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Paul's appeal is uh, is based on who he is. All right. First of all, I just want to say, a lot of us guys have been circumcised, <laughs> right? Okay. How many know what circumcision is? Anybody here not know what circumcision is? You're lying. I know there's got to be someone here who's going. I, don't, I know. I don't, I've heard that word. I never ask your doctor. <laughs> Again, if you want. 
Yeah, it's the, the natural cutting off of the foreskin. And uh, we do it in our culture. I have no idea why. It's because we were brought up in a tradition that thought there was some val- validity to it. Okay? And you can talk to doctors, and if you have a medical reason to do it, that's fine. But there's no, there's no medical reason given in the Bible. Okay? The Bible required it not for a medical reason. And so if you come up with a medical reason, that's fine. I can give you ten other people that have medical reasons why it's not good. But we're not talking about the medical issue here. Right? We're not talking about whether or not your parents decided to have you circumcised because their parents had them circumcised. And that's why most people have it. Because, well, I think it's okay. I think everybody else does it. Okay? <clears throat> I'm talking about requiring adherence to religious ritualism that was no longer necessary required, was no longer a means to be included in God's people. All right? And that's what we're talking about. Let me read what a commentator, uh, commentary says. All of these major themes of slavery, freedom, and the liberating work of Christ are now summed up in the ringing affirmation of chapter 5, verse 1 from the NIV. It says it this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This indicative, now this gets a little thick here, but this indicative is followed by an imperative. Stand firm then. This may sound like a dull lesson in grammar, but it's actually central to Pauline ethics. We must do, the imperative, is always based on what God has already done, the indicative. Or to put it another way, what God has done gives us the opportunity and power to do what we must do. This indicative imperative structure is seen here in verse 1 and also later in verse 13 and 25. It provides the structure for the whole chapter and really just an understanding of what God, how God works. God's done it, and because God's done it, we can do it. And we're called to do it. We're to be, we're to be free because the Son has made us free. And any returning to anything else is, is rejecting Christ. And whether you return to legalism, even if that legalism has a Christian uh, uh, tone to it rather than a Jewish tone or a nationalistic tone uh, or a political tone, any ism that replaces your life and freedom that you get through faith in Jesus Christ has the same results. It means that Christ will do you no good. It means that you'll be estranged from Christ, separated. It means that you're fallen from grace. And instead, what we're called to is that that love would fulfill the law. It says, for, cir- for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any avails anything, doesn't produce anything. But what does produce? Faith working in love. That's what changes lives. That's what transforms cultures. All right? Faith working in love. Faith being expressed. Faith being displayed. Christ being uh, formed completely and permanently and visibly in your life through faith. That's what makes a difference. And that's what we're called to. And uh, and he repeats this throughout many other places in the New Testament. Well, I'm out of time. We'll continue uh, to look. In the next section that we look at, we kind of delve into how this is lived out in a practical way. And, and Paul changes and, and after this whole conversation about um, 
uh, it, the, our inward identity being formed uh, uh, as Christ being born again in relationship with Christ is then reflected in our outward behavior. And so next week we'll delve into the fruits of, of, our, of our belief system and how they represent uh, what's really going on in our heart. Give him a hand. Isn't it good to have Cameron back?